to Life Lessons. We're Jen and Sherry. I'm Jen Stevens, a retired teacher of 28 years and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've worked in healthcare for over 26 years, and I've been an active volunteer for many organizations. We're both wives and moms, and let's face it, we're the glue that holds it all together in our homes. In our careers, we have always been problem solvers who help others. And that's what we'll be doing here, answering questions you didn't know you had, one smart solution at a time. We're always looking for ways to make our lives easier, help us be more productive, or improve our health and wellness. So let's live our best lives one day at a time, and let's have some fun along the way. Hi, everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to episode 37 of the Life Lessons podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing really well. Is it been raining there all the time? All the The rain is, time. I'm just, I've had enough of the rain. All the time. I actually just made a <laughs> Facebook post yesterday about it with all the funny Alabama rain memes. I really? Oh my gosh. Yes. No. Like we're going to float away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I just got back from a trip back home. I think I mentioned on yep. our last podcast that I was going back home for the first time in like nine years. Wow. And saw some old friends and stuff. And it was amazing. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot of life lessons. Oh, good. And we might have a future podcast episode about the lessons I learned. Well, I'm glad. You know, as we we grow and we can look back on times of our lives and you know forgive people and understand situations better and understand ourselves and how we react to things better and understand that we're all flawed. Right. And forgiveness is big. Yes. Yes. That forgiveness in itself could be an entire episode. It sure could. It sure <laughs> could. And and looking back on like our own parents, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about my own parents. You know, they got divorced when I was little and nobody's perfect parents. But then you look at, at them, your parents as parents, and then you as parents, you're like, none of us know what we're doing. Exactly. And something that really helps me is to really realize that I believe that everybody is doing the best job they can with what tools they have. Yeah. And then going back and saying, you know, those were some interesting choices my parents made, but I'm sure my children are looking back and thinking those are some interesting choices that my mom made, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We hope that we we hope, I mean, my husband will say this with his kids, you know, he didn't have the best childhood, but his parents didn't have the best childhood. Right. And he's like, you know, I just hope that I provide a better childhood for yeah, my kids. We want to do better. Than I received so that they can give a better childhood to their kids than they received from me. Yeah. So, you know, and one time I was ha- not that long ago, uh, maybe just a few months ago, Will was here. He's the one who's 21 that lives in Augusta. And he's struggling to figure out his direction in life. He's an artist and musician. And, you know, that's hard. He doesn't fit into the to mainstream, fit, you know, square peg, round hole. He doesn't fit into that. So and he, he's brilliant, but, you know, not compliant and <laughs> that sort of thing. Got that artistic mind. But I was like, you know, Will, I'm sorry that I wasn't always the best mom to you because I, I was a school teacher, of, you know, rules, you know, here's yep. how we're going to be. And, it, it, you know, we, we had some headbutting over the years. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, because when I look back, all I remember is how encouraging you were and how you made me feel like I could do anything. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. That made me feel so good. Because, you know, all I'm doing is thinking of all the times that I re- you know, responded more harshly than I should have or wasn't patient. Well, we are our worst critic. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Well, I'm glad you had a great trip. I did. So today's good news story uh, comes from an email that was submitted to our email at connectedlifelessonscommunity.com, and it's by Lori Anderson. And she wrote, my husband's family had a family reunion over the 4th of July this year. Four of us ventured down to Williamsburg, Virginia in our campers. Do you know where that is, Jen? Oh, I definitely know where Williamsburg I is. I grew up out um, outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, in the mountains, and we would go on like field trips to Williamsburg. You know, it's it's beautiful. I love Williamsburg. She said our adult kids came out for it, and two of my husband's cousins and their ninety year old father came all the way from Sacramento to join in on the fun. It was a great time as my kids were able to meet their great uncle for the first time. Wow, I know. Then we all ventured home. One fear of mine is having a tire blowout when towing our camper. The rule of thumb is to change out the tires every five to six years, and I've heard some horror stories about blowouts. We were at that five to six year time frame and had not changed out our tires. Our camper, which was carrying my husband, myself, and the dog, was headed back home with a two-night stay planned in Gettysburg. As the senior director of navigation... I was told by my driver husband that he did not wish to take Route 95 or anything associated with it home. So we ended up on Route 15. Just before getting to Leesburg, Virginia, we heard a pop. I asked, was that a tire? Yep. The powers above were with us as there was a single spot to pull over. Triple A was called. Thank you, Gemma. And a tow company immediately contacted us. Steve from WD Towing came out within an hour of our call and helped us with a smile. But before that, not one, but two people from Virginia stopped and offered their help. One was also a camper so they could relate. The other was a grandpa with his two grandsons. It was so nice to know that so many people were able to assist us. Note, we did have a spare tire, but no jack. So thumbs up to AAA, the RV Plus subscription, Steve from Double D Towing in Leesburg, Virginia, and the two sets of very friendly people who stopped by to offer assistance. Also, we are so thankful we are not on I-95. Somebody was looking out for us that day. I hope you enjoyed this story, and we will definitely pay it forward. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you were not on I-95. Also, I-95 is like something else. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) You've been on it with me very briefly. Oh, like going to the beach? going to the beach. You get on it very briefly. We go mm -hmm. I-20. I-20 is such an easy road to be on, except when they were doing all that crazy construction between Augusta and Columbia where you got trapped in these lanes that you had to be in for like forever, and I didn't like that. (laughs) They're done with that. So 95 is what we take before we turn off to go. I got From Florence, if you're right there, and if you go south on it, it'll take you towards Savannah, and if you go north, it takes you towards like you're going towards North Carolina and Virginia, and it goes all the way up the – but it's a hard road to drive on all the way. One time I took it from Virginia to, I don't know how far it goes, but I was going to Vermont. I was driving to Vermont one summer from Virginia. And I drove up through like New Jersey, New York. Oh my God, it was terrifying. (laughs) Pennsylvania, because it goes through every single metro. Like it goes through Washington, D.C. It goes through. It was terrifying. I was like this little girl driving my little car. So it's the north-south interstate that runs up the east East coast. I gotcha. Yes, yes, it is no joke. But yeah, we're on it for like 10 miles when we're going to Myrtle Beach because we get off in Florence for my 20. You don't have to get on it, but it's just 10 little miles. It's just a a little calm part of I-95. 
So now the listeners know that I am not the um, senior director of navigation no. when Jen and I drive. My we, car is. We she let just Martha. tells me where to go. My car's <laughs> yeah. name is Martha. Yeah, she just tells me where to go. <laughs> All right, listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. Sherry, did you name your car? Yes, my truck is named Daisy Duke. Okay, I remember you told me that. (laughs) Yeah, I named my car, too, anyway. Some people might think that's weird. I always name my cars, and they always have female names. Yeah, mine, too. Yeah, my red Jeep was Lucy for Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get to the life lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that helps make it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And today, I want to talk about Beauty Counter. You've heard Jen and I talk before about Beauty Counter, and you know how much I love it. And I just got back from spending 10 days with my best friends from back home. And the first night that we all got together, my one friend just kept looking at me and I finally said, what? And she said, I just can't get over how amazing you look. Your skin is beautiful and glowing. We were celebrating my 48th birthday and she is five years younger than I am. And she just kept going on and on about my skin and how I look younger now than when I lived there 11 years ago. My other friend's husband jumped into the conversation and he's like, I know, right? I've been looking at her since she got here and I cannot figure out how she is aging backwards and how she looks so young. And then he jokingly called me, not very nice name (laughs) because he said it's not fair. Right. (laughs) So I have to give a lot of credit to my IF lifestyle. But in the last 10 months or so that I've been using Beauty Counter, my skin has really transformed drastically. It's smooth. The discolorations that I've been battling for about 12 years are virtually gone. I don't have breakouts anymore. And my skin just like glows from within. And I will say it does seem expensive when you first look at it compared to like drugstore brands. But well, it, it definitely is. Yes. Forever. <laughs> yeah. It's so emollient, especially like the tetrapeptide night cream that I use. You just need a tiny dab of it. So like, I bought a full jar in December and I still have over half a jar left. And I don't use it sparingly. It's just you don't need a lot. I packed it all up with me to take out of town. Like I had to check a bag because I had to bring my beauty counter. But they now have released a travel carry-on set. So I immediately ordered it because I have a couple short trips coming up over the next few months. These TSA-friendly travel size bottles are glass, so you don't have to worry about endocrine disruptors from plastic bottles. They are refillable, and they come in a stylish, reusable pouch. You can check it out at beautycounter.com forward slash Sherry Bullock. I'm so excited because I just got a notification while we've been sitting here recording that they'd have a new mascara coming out, mm-hmm. and it's been delivered. Oh, yay. So I can't wait to try it. I'm so excited. Yeah, you'll have to let me know what you think. Yeah. So we'll see. I will let definitely let you know. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are going to talk to Mary Joy, the author of the book, Codependent Discovery and Recovery 2.0, A Holistic Approach to Healing and Freeing Yourself. She is a licensed therapist who helps people take back their lives from codependency. In her book, she provides her readers with practical tools to help them get their lives back. It includes meditations, affirmations, a quick fix chapter, and opportunities for self-reflection. 
I'm sure many listeners are familiar with codependency, but others may not be. They might be struggling in relationships, either past or current, and not even understand why. So today, I hope that Mary can share some insight into the subject and help our listeners learn a bit about this and how to identify codependent behaviors and what they can do to overcome them. Welcome, Mary. Thank you for having me. It's it's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm one of those listeners that needs to know more because, (laughs) of course, I've heard the phrase and I have my own idea of what I think it means but I I can't wait to learn more about it from you. I enjoy you even asking that question, Jen and Sherry, because when I was told I was codependent, I didn't know what it meant either. (laughs) Well, I'm going to be completely honest, and I was in a very unhealthy relationship for many, many years that I believe I was with a narcissist. And after reading about that sort of relationship, I started wondering if I was codependent. But you know how you put blinders on and you're like, I don't want to know? Yes, and they're very good at deceiving you, too, though. Narcissists are excellent <laughs> deceivers. So so when I, it came to codependency, I was like, oh, my gosh, could that be me? But I like consider myself a very independent person, so then I would talk myself out of it. But I have come to learn that doesn't always mean you can be independent and codependent, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was one of them, so absolutely can. Yeah, tell us about, you know, how do we know? What is it? We're ready for some basics for those of us that don't have a clue. (laughs) I'm going to tell you what it's not. First of all, it's better to tell you what it's not. It's not a formal diagnosable disorder in the American Psychiatric Association manual. It's never been a formal disorder, but it can feel like one because codependents often get involved, as you said, Sherry, with people who are disordered, such as narcissistic personality disorder or just narcissistic people in general. That's what it's not. It used to mean you were living with someone who was dependent on a substance, and so you were codependent. Now it's expanded to mean you're just losing yourself caring for others. And the symptoms of it are people-pleasing, approval-seeking. Also what you said about being fiercely independent, being a fixer and a rescuer, and you know, an interventionist sometimes. I, I know what's best for you, and you just give unsolicited advice. So in the book, it covers a spectrum of it, but mostly the brief version is you lose yourself while caring for others. So it started off as, as someone, a partner or someone, or a, I, mean, I guess it wouldn't have to be a partner, it could be a parent, just anyone in a relationship with someone with like an addiction struggle? That's what it used to mean. Was, okay. I actually love, there's a woman called Barbara Oakley who's done a lot of work and I contacted her in writing the book because I do a lot of research when I write. People say, how do you write? You read and you research. Oh yeah. And she called it pathological altruism. And I like that expression because people are so altruistic, meaning they believe the best in people and they can believe the best and the worst of people. And I always said, I would have been the one to pick up Ted Bundy hitchhiking because he had (laughs) a cast on his hand. He was carrying books on a college campus and I would go, oh, and I would feel sorry for him and I would pick him up. Yeah, poor guy. That would be a codependent thing. So let me like triggered something when you said, you know, that it comes from exposure to addiction or living with somebody with addiction or whatever. So that would not apply to my life at all. However, can it be learned? Can codependency be learned behavior from a parent? Absolutely. I have all that in the book. And that okay. the, that's what I guess I should clarify. The old definition of codependent meant you were with someone who has an addiction. The new definition is no abusive people, selfish people. If you have one-sided relationships, if you're the one doing all the doing, as they say in the South, and 
you're doing all the work and you're people pleasing and you're approval seeking, all those things are codependent qualities. You don't necessarily have to be involved with someone who is addicted to be codependent. You can even look independent. Would the word be perhaps enabling? Is that a good way of looking at? I call it disabling. People do okay. call it enabling, but I say that you're disabling people when you say, sure, I'll bake a thousand pies for the social this week. Right. And you don't have time. You're disabling people from helping themselves. So yes, people do call them codependent enablers. And there is enabling characteristics, but I think it's more disabling to help people who can help themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that way of looking at it. Yes. Codependent enabler is a yet another way of blaming, I hate to say the victim, but blaming the person who's not responsible. I mean, when you say, well, you're a codependent enabler because you buy your husband, you know, boxes and boxes of Twinkies and he weighs 400 pounds, he's going to buy them some other way. You're not enabling him. You just are doing something nice that he wants that he's going to get anyway. So do you see how people will blame someone who's codependent for someone else's issue? Yes. They're yes, blaming uh-huh. the the person for the overeater's problem. It's, that's right. why I say they're actually disabling. I let up on the person that's being called the codependent. That makes sense. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I do too. Because you're right. You cannot be responsible for someone else's choices. No. No, and I did an internship in a drug and alcohol rehab, and when I heard that codependent enabling, I said, it struck me, I had, I was in an internship, so I had to be a good girl, uh, and that's when I heard I was codependent in that, in that environment, but it just struck me as odd when I would hear the family gatherings in the, in, you know, in therapy, and the families would say, well, I'm the codependent, and they would blame the person, well, did you buy him liquor? They're going to get liquor somewhere. Whether you right. buy it or not, my question was, did you put a funnel down his throat and pour it in there and make him drink it? That would be enabling. Right. right. Okay. So it used to it used to stick me. I felt so sorry for the person who was being called the enabler when that whoever it was was going to go get their own liquor, if that makes sense. Well, and I think, I don't know, I could be wrong. You can give me your input. You're the professional. Sometimes codependent behaviors. So like, um, did you buy him alcohol? Well, maybe the alternative was going to be way worse than that person going to the store and buying another 12 pack of beer. Maybe the alcoholic was going to get in their vehicle and drive there themselves. And you were trying to mediate that situation and make it less dangerous or, you know, lessen a potential negative outcome. Now you completely understand it, Sherry. Thank you. That's exactly right. That is so right. Because is the guy going to go buy Twinkies and pizza and fried chicken? They they may, yes. And a quart of ice cream. And, Without right. people finding out the whole story of what's going on, they're just making assumptions, which is never a good idea. Because assumptions are judgments in disguise. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah, harmful exactly. instead of helpful. So how does someone know, you know, what you know what's wrong with codependency what what does it what problems does it cause for us you know how does it make us struggle that sort of thing well you give until you give out and in the healthcare profession there is a diagnosis called burnout and i would say a lot of codependents definitely qualify for that and that is a diagnosable billable on insurance coded illness and i think if you give to you give out and there's no joy in it, 
you know, there's that old saying, and it's, it's, I'm not a preachy person at all, but it says, Lord loves a cheerful giver. Well, it took me a while to go, hmm, if I cease to be cheerful, I might be giving too much. This might be, I might be giving till I'm giving out. And in the book, I cover the roots of some of that because you can be of any faith and have that same thing. You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive, do unto others. All these things that we hear in across the board in almost every faith or moral compass. And that's a good thing unless somebody already has that uh, empathetic bone that's beyond giving. They overgive, they overdo, they overshare. Well, I think a good gauge of are you over giving, are you overdoing is when you start to feel bitter about it or angry about it or feeling like I'm not getting anything in return, I'm doing this all by myself. I think that's probably a good gauge that you need to step back and think, okay, what, you know, what do I need to do differently to better support my own, you know, health and mental health and wellness? Absolutely. Resentment is Mm -hmm. a great symptom to pay attention to. And codependence, I call codependency narcissism in reverse. And I'll tell you why it makes perfect sense when you hear it this way. Narcissists are focused on themselves and codependents are focused on everyone else. So if you give to the point of resentment and also you get false guilt if you say no. So you give to resentment and you get false guilt if you say no. So you give until you overgive and then you go, this is the thanks I get because you are giving to get, you are giving out of a place of wanting to stay connected to people and being thought of as a good person. There's a, you have to change your intention and your motives for giving. If you give, you need to give with no expectation of return, or you might be codependent. That doesn't mean that people that give and expect something in return. That doesn't mean they are codependent, but it certainly is one of one of the things you need to look out for in your giving. If you look at your checkbook and you spent more money on other people than you do on your own needs, I have a whole chapter on financial abuse uh, because that is one of the greatest ways to know if you're codependent. Follow that money trail. It will teach you a lot, a lot. Yep. Does that strike a bell with you, Sherry? Absolutely. Absolutely. My ex spent money faster than he could make it or I could make it. And it was always, well, if you don't let me buy this, I'm not going to be happy or I am going to leave or I'm going to commit suicide. And so you would find ways like, okay, well, we can't afford that. But what about this? Because you just, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, well, if I don't get him this, it's going to be something else. But what I learned over time is it's always something else to the point that he drove me to bankruptcy twice. It's never enough. I lost it two is, homes. It is never enough. You and I had the same husband. Did you very well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. O Magazine wrote about that relationship. They, I always said, if you have $5, you spend 10. If we had 10 million, you'd spend 20 million. It didn't matter. Well, and the saddest part was I couldn't see it. I could not see a lot of this behavior until I stepped away from this relationship. And then in retrospect, you look at it and you're like, what was I doing? I'm a smart person. Like, why? How was I manipulated like that? And the other thing was, is I, in retrospect, he wanted to keep me broke because that was a way to keep me. So it was... Well, you can't afford to live on your own because you have all these bills. Well, guess what? He had awful credit and I had better credit and I had a better job. So all this stuff would end up in my name. And then he was like, well, you can't leave because you can't afford to live on your own. 
And I believed that lie for a long time. And I can't tell you, getting out of that relationship, I'm richer than I've ever been. And I don't mean just in money, you know, emotionally and and everything. So well, this tells me right here, Sherry and Jen, because there's two out of three of us that have suffered this. That is exactly the story of my marriage. Is I put little snippets of it in the book. They're always asking you to co-sign loans or use your credit cards. The two major ways people use you as a codependent, they use you usually financially, like you said, Sherry, or they keep you in poverty so that you can't leave because they're driven by a fear of abandonment and codependents are driven by a fear of abandonment and not wanting to be alone. Okay. That's so interesting. It's a very symbiotic, toxic relationship. Can I just tell you something? I just diagnosed myself as not codependent. Yay. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, maybe I am and I just don't know it. Yay. Yeah. That's not me. <laughs> yes. You would notice that and say, hey, yeah, you can't spend all that money. I got issues. We all we all have issues, but that is not it. Yay. Well, then you'll, te- you'll teach them well. You'll teach people well. So this is something I'm curious about, too, as we're talking. You know, there are those people who are just natural caretakers. They're born as caretakers. You have your your nurses, your teachers, teachers, your doctors. Right. Do you think that people who have that personality are more prone to codependency? Yes. In fact, in the book is a chapter on, I I forget the title of the chapter, but it's about closet codependence. Is they're hidden. And I have nurses, doctors, attorneys, teachers, good parents, the really good parents. Yes, the the people that are caregivers, therapists, I put myself in there. And if you don't learn to self-care, you can become completely codependent because, you know, people will say, can I come in on weekends? And I used to come in on weekends. Occasionally I will, but my phone is off at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night and I put it in another room. It is not next to my bed because if I don't take that time to self-care, I can't care for people the next day. So, but caring for people is not, doesn't mean you're you're codependent. Oh no, that's compassionate. But if your compassion, if your compassion turns to a compulsion to give and you feel Mm -hmm. guilty if you don't give or people have coerced you, because Sherry, how your husband probably did it is using sympathy and your empathy. And we have a people that are empathetic have a very large prefrontal cortex activity with empathy. And it makes it very dangerous because you can fall prey to that. But if you're aware of your feelings about yourself, that's why the codependent has to pay attention to their own feelings. I always tell people, pay attention to your tension and with intention, seek and then speak your truth. And I say that to rhyme. You can tell I used to be a songwriter because it really helps people (laughs) get that because So many times a codependent will go, well, what do they think of me? Or what are they going to think of me if I say no? How do you feel about you when you're just about to say no when you mean yes and yes when you mean no? So no, being compassionate is not codependent. That's what the whole book teaches. I'm not here to change people's personalities or their compassionate giving. It's how to give and live well. You can give and still live well. As you learn, Sherry, I'm wealthier in every way, just like you are from getting away from someone who made me believe that you can never make it on your own. How are you going to do this? I went back to school and I learned I was codependent from a professor. So the root of a lot of it is approval seeking, being being codependent? Well, it's also, some of it's neuroscientific. You can be born that way. You actually can. And then you can also learn that behavior from parents or care, you know, early caregivers. I got a message from my from my mother that she her parents were from Italy, so it was an old school 
method that women were put on this earth to serve men. I'm grateful that my father gave me the other message of act like a lady and think like a man, which was also helpful, but how duplicitous was that? Right. And so I'm a natural born people pleaser, which great for performing, but not great for being a kid and trying to please both parents. So those mixed messages, I constantly vacillated back and forth between being what you said, Sherry, being independent, I can do anything a man can do, and then being codependent and saying, no, I'm supposed to be... I'm supposed to serve men. It was very conflicted. And I had to learn how to decipher all those messages and kind of deconstruct them to reconstruct my life. I think back on my life and I had a brother who was born with congenital heart and lung issues. And he was older than me by a couple of years. But somewhere along the line, I became his protector. His He couldn't play with the boys in the neighborhood because he was more fragile and I was the tomboy. So I went where he went and I did the boy things he couldn't do while he watched on the sidelines to kind of to, you know, boys can be mean and they'll tease. So I would try to take the attention off of him and kind of live for him a little bit. I know that sounds kind of weird. And, you know, so I think back to that. And then, you know, when like my mom was to leave the house and leave us home alone, I was the one in charge, right? Even though I was the middle child. Yes. So I was the one in charge. I had a younger sister. You know, I started babysitting at a very young age, what would be considered very young at the in these days, I mean, like 10 years old, taking care of newborns. So I just felt like looking back, I was always in that caretaker role. So then by the time I was 21 and getting married, I was I feel like I was still in that caretaker role. And plus, you have that whole, you know, you have to hold your marriage together, you have to make it work. So you just are like, okay, well, if this is what I have to do, I'm going to do it. And I like just looking back, I can see those patterns and kind of how they evolved a little bit. Yes, you were the family caregiver. Like I was the family clown, keep everybody happy. Mm -hmm. It was exhausting. Yes. And impossible. And there was abuse in my family. And I was a psychiatrist child. So just like being a preacher's kid, very similar dynamic. Most people know that dynamic. Preacher's kids can't be bad. Psychiatrist kids can't have any problems. They can't be molested. They can't be abused. They can't go through any of that stuff. So you learn to cover up and take a fall for people. And uh, I covered that in my book. So that is another way you can learn that is by trauma. Many traumatized kids take on the shame of the perpetrator and in doing so, carry that into adulthood and into their attachment styles as I have to just take it because... Isn't that tragic? It's tragic. And that's why... I have such a passion for what I wrote because it's different in the fact that I just expose the roots and hope that people can relate to how to get better because the good news is you can get better. Those are just things that happen to you. They don't have to define the rest of your life. What are some things that someone who, if they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds like me. Of course, if if they think it sounds like them, they should get your book. Codependent Discovery and Recovery 2.0, A Holistic Approach to Healing and Freeing Yourself by Mary Joy. <laughs> and by the way, I had to ask at the beginning before we started recording, Joy is her last name, J-O-Y-E, because we talked, we joked about how that's like in the South, that would just be your first name and your, you know, Mary Joy. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes. Mary Joy what? Mary Joy what? Yeah. Mary Joy what? Yeah, Mary Joy what? <laughs> and, and, But if someone's like, this really does sound like me, they need to read your book. But if someone knows it's them already, they're not sure, you know, they need to figure it out. But if they know, yes, this this sounds like me, I need help. You know, what what's the hope for them? How can they recover even in the middle of, you know, relationship that they're struggling in? And can they save that relationship and recover at the same time? 
It depends on the nature of the relationship. It's if it's really, really abusive, no. I would be okay, remiss yeah. to say that. Can you have an exit strategy? Number one, and I'm sure Sherry, you may have done that. I know that's what I did. My exit strategy was getting an education. An education was liberation. And there I found out I was codependent. So it was years of unraveling that. Ask for help. Codependents never ask for help. They don't. And my drug and alcohol class, I mean, it's a it's a semi-humorous story, also not <laughs> something you'd be proud of. But as a therapist in an internship, they have a ropes course that you have to get on. And we had to do it with the patients that were addicted. Everybody got off that ropes course. You're blindfolded and you're going on a ropes. It's a maze and you can't get off. The secret is you can't get off. There's no way off. And it's two hours long. So about an hour and 45 minutes into it, after the instructor said over and over and over, you can ask for help if you need it, but whisper to me when you ask for it. So I raised my hand and he came over and I said, is asking for help the way you get off? And he said, are you asking for help? And I said, I didn't say that. I said, is asking <laughs> for help how you get off? And he just started laughing and just like you are. And I said, oh, okay, now I get it. Because And then after the course, he said, these two nursing students and this therapy student are the codependents in your life. They will kill themselves and they will give until they give out and not ask for help. You all asked for help immediately. They didn't. So that was a big learning experience. So education, number one, because education is liberation. And then number two, to really understand the neuroscience and physiology of codependency. The vagus nerve is something I covered in the book, that reactivity, that tightening in your chest when you want to say no, but somebody's just coercing you. Oh, you make the best meatloaf in the world. Can you, can you make that for me? It's like, no, it's like you don't have time. So if you feel that tightness in your chest, pay attention to physiology. And then I do have meditations and affirmations and things to start rewiring your brain. I think that neuroscience chapter is so important because it builds on every other chapter of teaching people to retrain their brain. They will, when they go from codependent to more independent, they will feel selfish. When a codependent walks in my office now and they say, I feel so selfish. I feel like I'm the narcissist. Now I go, welcome to your healing. Oh yeah. That is that tipping scale. They have just gone from being a doormat or a controlling, you know, kind of nagging person into healthy and taking care of themselves. And it feels selfish because it's so unfamiliar to them. So hopefully that kind of explained the steps of education, physiology, and then to rewire your brain and to be conscious of your subconscious so you can change that reactivity. If there was one tool, if there was one word, one tool that people need to learn to recover from codependency, do you have that? Do you have that word in your mind? Yes. What is that? They may not like to hear it. So I will say it in two ways. If you don't like the word meditation, if you don't like it, I understand. So in lieu of meditation, use your imagination because meditation, truly guided meditations. And they, I have YouTube ones that are, they're not all uploaded yet, but there's one at the end of every chapter. They're really just imaginations. Do not imagine what you want for other people. Imagine what you want for your life, what you do want, what you don't want. Because at the end of each chapter two is a life list and your your are life lessons. So every chapter at the end has what you don't want in your life and what you do. And at the end, you're only left with what's right, which is exactly how I recovered. Because I did meditate. And if you don't like the word, just imagine for five minutes. 
right? What kind of house You're do I want to live in? visualizing. Yes. How do I want to get those credit cards out of my husband's hands? How do I, you know, your brain will help you if you think about you and not complain about, my husband's spending too much money. That's focusing on the problem. Start focusing on the solution and what you do want. And your right. brain, we have, I'll spare you the neuroscience lecture, but your brain will help you seek that answer. Well, and you there's will find that it. Phrase, so imagination. <laughs> the power of the pause. Yes. And it can be used in so many ways. Yes. But when you are, you know, frantically clawing your way through life, it's really easy to ignore what it is you want or what it is you need. And taking that pause, the meditation, imagination, whatever it may be, it really forces you to sit and think about where you're at and where you want to be and what changes you need to make. So I think that's really that's really powerful. Yes. So if you don't like the word meditation, just use the word imagination. Just five minutes of sitting back if you're exhausted and just saying, what did I do to have this happen? What can I do to undo it? And how can I learn from this and move forward? That took me 30 seconds. That last part is so huge. Yes. What can I learn from this and, and then apply moving forward? Because that's really, you know, all the experiences that we go through, if we just would think about them like that, what is this teaching me about me? Because really the only person you can control is yourself. You can't control what someone else is going to do at all. You, you cannot, that, you know, as a parent, you know, I've got a 21-year-old and a 23-year-old. And that's the hardest lesson is realizing that you cannot control what they do. <laughs> no, you can't. You wish you could, but you can't. You wish you could. And, and you know, it's it's their own their own choice. But, you know, learning from everything that's happening for, you know, around you and, and not trying to control it, manipulate it, but say, okay, all I can control in this is my response to it. Well, and I think when you are in the throes of codependency, you often feel powerless. Yes. Like you have no power. Everything is happening to you or around you and you can't stop it. But really, now looking back, I had all the power. You had all it, the power. I had all the power. I just didn't realize I had all the power. No, you had all the power. Yes. And because I did go to an addictions doctor to recover from codependency. I went through a process and finally I said, okay, I, I really need to just go for the throat here. And I said, I want to know what's going on in my brain that makes me say yes when I mean no and no when I mean yes and trips me up. And it was explained to me like pathological altruism, you get dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine when you give. It lights up the reward centers in people that have codependent tendencies. And now, then, does it do it for all people? No. Or people that okay. have high empathetic responses, people with no empathy, such as narcissists or sociopaths, they don't get that feel good feeling when they give. You know, the, they don't get that. The reward centers in their brain don't light up. So when you feel that, oh, you need me, that, oh, okay, well, I can do that. And then you go, why did I say yes? That yes, Wonder that, Woman moment. Yes. Exactly. But again, saying yes and giving is not a bad thing. No. It's just when you're doing it, like you said, you pathologically. Out. Yes, pathologically. And it, it, yeah. To stay connected to people. If you're, if you can say, say no sometimes, you know, yeah. Yes. Even if you say yes a lot, that's okay. And a codependent can't say no very well. So I teach them something that's used in other contexts, but it's called the gratitude sandwich. So thank you for thinking I could bake a thousand pies for your wedding, but I just can't do it justice. But thank you for thinking of me. That was really... I love that. Yes. I just said, thank Gratitude you, no sandwich. way, thank you. 
Thank you. No way. Thank you. You know, as teachers, yes. we use that for feedback a yes. lot. You know, when, when you're giving, I was a teacher. I taught for 28 years and I taught elementary kids. And, but, you know, say something positive. Yes. Then something constructive. Yes. And then wrap, ended up with a positive. It's, it's taken better. Yes. And it also, you don't have to say no. Yep. Because so many codependents here in recovery, they feel powerless and they said, well, just say no or just leave the person. No, there's exit strategies for leaving. There's ways to say no without saying no. So it, my, my way is a kinder, softer, gentler way. And the best people that have ever healed have done it in their time frame, not mine, theirs, because I'm here to help people. You know, I can't bake a thousand cupcakes is just a fact, yes. right? <laughs> yes. It's not no, it's I just can't do that. Yes. Yeah, it's reality. <laughs> when saying no, I feel like I might be guilty of this. Is it necessary to give a reason why you say no, ever? No. <laughs> okay. But that said, tell that to someone in codependent crisis. Well, they I learn say that to say no over time, just to say no. My manager no. will call me and ask me to pick up an extra shift. And I'm like, oh, I can't today. I've got too much going on. Da, 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 da. And then I will actually say, no, I'm sorry. I can't today. I have, you know, and I'll say, I have too much going on. I already have stuff on my schedule. I can't help you today. Where I feel like maybe I just need to say, no, I can't work today. Yeah. Just say, no, I can't. <laughs> Guess what, Sherry? And, and maybe the reason is you just don't want to. Well, Sometimes that is the reason. You know, Sherry, <laughs> you have graduated. You are not codependent anymore because that the gratitude sandwich that I used is what you use when you can't say no. But sooner or later, you learn to just say no. And it's very freeing, but it has a process. That's the exit strategy for when you can't say no. So yes, I can say no sometimes. Just nope, no thank you, can't do it. Nope. But you have to learn to get to that spot. So someone's having a hard time. It is definitely a process. And I've been out of that relationship for seven, eight years now. And it is definitely a process. And I feel like the longer you sort of, I mean, like I did not label myself as codependent because I don't like labels per se. But I mean, I, I see it. I've, I've read enough to know that I fit in that category. And, you know, for me, learning to just say like, I deserve better. I deserve to not walk around waiting for the other shoe to drop, not walk around holding my breath. You know, like I can't, looking back, I was so like, oh, constantly stressed out and constantly like, what's going to happen next? And how am I going to stop it? Like it was my job to intervene constantly. And I don't have that life anymore. I just get Yay. up and I take care of what needs to be taken care of. and I don't either. I do see some creep here and there. But I'm, yes, it I creeps. think once you're aware, then you're able to be like, mm, no, that's not healthy for me. No, when you're self-aware, you can self-care. And back to the doctor that taught me that, he said, don't ever call yourself a codependent again because you'll call it in. Oh, yeah. He's an addiction specialist. He doesn't like the, the model because he believes it's an illness and it is he doesn't like the model of hello i'm joe i'm an alcoholic and you haven't had a drink in 20 years he was like hello i'm joe i have a disease that wants me to drink and forces my brain to think drinking is good for me but i'm addiction but i haven't had a drink in 20 years do you see the difference 
I yes. do. You're unlabeling do. yourself again. Exactly. It's it's disabling. Like giving people. yourself like a a label, label and a, this is who I am. Yes, I'm a recovered. It, it almost makes you powerless. Yes. I'm a recovered codependent, and I'm very careful to say that. And I covered all that in what I wrote about going to him. And he said, just powerful. And he said, if you're around people and you start getting codependent, detach. And he said, detach like a Buddhist, so that law of detachment that they have. Right. He explained it to me. I did not know about it. He said, detach like a Buddhist and go and enjoy your life. And you will feel guilty and you will feel selfish. But sooner or later, those withdrawal symptoms of anxiety and false guilt, they will they will come off of you and you'll retrain your brain to know it's okay, like you both said, to be worthy, to have self-worth and value. Right. Yeah. And you start to realize that you matter just as much as the other person. Yes. Especially giving people matter because the world needs more giving people, but they need to receive to give. You cannot give away something you don't have. You have to receive. Right. You can't pour from an empty cup. No. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. We did an entire episode on self-care and it was amazing how many people wrote into us and we poll our community before we do a lot of the the episodes and ask them, you know, what do they need help out there? What are their thoughts on this or that? And so many people just said they feel so guilty if they take, you know, an hour a week to do something for themselves because their kids need them or their husbands need them or, you know, whatever. And I feel like this is a, this is a plight on society today. Yes. To not take that time. That's what we teach our children. We teach our children You've taught your children two lessons if you completely give to you give out with them. You've taught, and it can be anything in between, but the two major lessons are one child might get entitled. That's the scary one because that's the narcissistic kind. And the other child might believe, as you did share, you got to be everything for everybody. You have to do it all. So those two major messages can can cause you know, some, some dangerous attachment issues in adulthood. But yes, we just need to tell people that everyone matters. We all matter. We all matter. And yes, I still slip up and do codependent things, but I'm aware of it. When you self-care, you're self-aware, right? And then you can better help others. I'm glad you all have done one on self-care. That's wonderful. Yeah. So tell our listeners, you know, how can they find your book? Where is it available for them? August 31st, it'll be of 2021. It'll be available wherever books are sold. It'll be in bookstores, but also every major book outlet, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all online outlets, indie books, Books a Million, they all have it. And I'm assuming they can they can pre-order right now? Yes, they can on Amazon. Okay. And other Okay, perfect. And HCI Life Issues Publisher, they're wonderful. You can also just go to their website. They have lots of other titles too that might be of interest to people that are interested in self-help. So our podcast that released today was actually with an author from that publishing. Oh, they're wonderful. Uh, for that publisher. And he was wonderful. It was a wonderful session with him. We really enjoyed talking to him too. So so this episode comes out on August 11th. So if you're listening today, I really suggest that you get this book. I have it. Um, I got an advanced reader copy. I was lucky enough to to get that as, as did Jen. And um, go ahead and, and order it and see what you can do to really improve your life and your relationships. And I hope it helps a lot of people help themselves Absolutely. so they can better help each other. Because again, I think a lot of us are confused with not knowing, is this me or is it not me? And you know, when is, when is giving okay? When is it not okay? And so I think it could just help people figure out themselves. Yes, to Absolutely. navigate their own if healing. They, yeah. Exactly. And that's, it really is a self-help experience because they're writing a lot of their own healing experience. Right. 
So thank you, Jen and Sherry. It's been great to share this with you. And hopefully it will help a lot of people because nobody needs to suffer like this anymore. No, not at all. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank Thank you. you. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And that is Sunlight and Saunas. Jen loves her sunlight and sauna so much that we paired up with them to spread the word about the benefits of regular sauna use and to provide our listeners with a special deal. Many people are not familiar with all the health benefits that regular sauna use provides, so I want to start by going over a few key facts about that. Saunas help your body detox from heavy metals, medications, and hormone disruptors. Studies have shown that they help to boost your immunity, which is especially important. They decrease inflammation by increasing blood flow to every part of the body, and they penetrate muscles to relieve aches and pains. Saunas also promote healing and improve cardiovascular health. Regular sauna use can improve fat burning and boost metabolism. Saunas also mimic the endorphin release of exercise, and they promote relaxation in users. Sunlighten was founded as a result of a personal healing experience with infrared therapy. For more than a decade, the founder suffered from chronic illness and relied on traditional medicine to manage his condition. It was only when he discovered infrared saunas that he truly began to heal. Jason founded the company in 1999 to help make more people aware of the remarkable healing power of infrared that he personally experienced. You know, that's really what sold me on Sunlighten. Whenever a company is founded as, you know, quest of someone for their own personal healing, mm-hmm. you're like, you know, I'm such a believer in this. I'm going to create a company that does it better because they're making it for themselves. Right. You know, if you make something for yourself, you want it to be amazing. Exactly. So that always is a big one for me. If you want to learn more, you can visit lifelessonscommunity.com and go to the Shop With Us link, and you can take advantage of a special deal in Sunlight and Saunas. They have many different sizes and options that will fit your space, no matter how large or small it might be. Yep. And I have a three-person sauna, which is really just right for me (laughs) because I can lounge. (laughs) But when Sherry comes over, we can both get in there, and it's not like weirdly awkward. Not at all. Close together. No. We, We have personal space in there. We do. We do. All right. So next we have a segment we call our listener-led lesson. It might be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from, oh gosh, how do I pronounce this? Two Oregonians? Maybe. That sounds better than Oregonians, which is the way I said it in my head. Two people from Oregon. Let me just say it like that. You wrote it. (laughs) Anyway, two people who live in Oregon... (laughs) And they are both egg-related, which is exciting because I do love eggs. Me this too. From Lori in Oregon. She says, my favorite scrambled egg trick is from Jacques Pepin, Pepin. Is that how you say his name? For smooth, silky eggs is to save a bit of egg when you put them in the pan. Keep stirring, never letting them stick to the bottom. Then right before they're done, add the remaining egg and a splash of Heavy cream, not half and half, stir like mad, and they are like silk. Now, for me, also, I want to add to that, Sherry, with scrambled eggs, I can't remember. I think it might have been Julia Child. I watched her make scrambled eggs one time. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, the French technique, cook them low and slow. Yes. I mean, so low and slow that you don't even know that they're even cooking. Exactly. The lowest possible setting and just stir and stir and stir. And then I realized why I hated scrambled eggs. They were always the way my mother made them. Yes. She, they would all be spongy, you know, and like dried out and weird. Yes. 
Yeah. And then they weren't good. Spongy eggs are the worst. They are the worst because she would cook them, <laughs> I guess, on high. I don't know. Throw the eggs in. Boom. They're done. No. Yeah. If With, your scrambled eggs are starting to get any brown on them, your temperature is too high. Too high. Cook them low and slow. All right. And Janine says her tip for keeping over easy eggs from sticking is to remove them from the burner immediately after flipping. And also for egg, fried eggs, you know, low and slow. Yes. That's another, you know, I, when I would post my meals in the Facebook group back when I was on Facebook, people would often be like, how do you make your eggs look so perfect? And I'm like, because you just cook them really low and slow. You're not an over easy girl, though, are you? No. Yeah. I do like mine over easy. And Chad I does. did try her her technique yesterday. I made. Did it help? I, I threw a couple eggs on my dinner. Yeah, it did. I actually was able just to sort of flip them out of the pan on top of my meal so that's good yeah i do i do when i make fried eggs for us that are going to go on top of a dish i'll i take mine out and then i flip chad's over and have his be because he likes just a little more done than me but um so mine were pretty because they were sunny side up yeah i don't leave them right i would say i don't leave them over very long just enough just just a tad yeah but i i wait till they're completely you know the whites are set and then i take mine off but I need that runny, runny yolk. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the over easy. I want it to be <laughs> sunny side up, but done. <laughs> At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener. And today's is from Lisa. She said, time passes so quickly, you literally do not even notice it until it begins to show. So don't wait to use the good china. Go on the trip. Eat the cake. Watch the late movie. Read your favorite book. And take a chance in life. The time is now. Because tomorrow is promised to no one. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Yes. Use the good china. Absolutely. That's a, that one jumps out at me. Because how many of us have stuff that we have shoved in the back of our cabinets? We don't ever use it. Yeah. Well, and then there's me who I have wanted Fiesta wear for like 20 years. And I kept saying, I'm going to wait till I don't have any kids in the house. And then I remarried. And I now have bonus kits. And my youngest is eight. And I'm like, am I going to wait 10 more years to get my Fiesta wear? Can I tell you something about Fiesta wear? That's what you want if you do have kids. It is indestructible. Not, you know, I've got Will and and that was like hard on everything. And it never one time, I never have had a piece of Fiesta wear chip. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes someone would drop it on the tile floor. Very rarely. We, right. We've broken very few pieces, but you literally had to drop it on the floor. If we didn't chip it, it is good stuff. I mean, I literally not on my, one piece is ever chipped. My 50th birthday wish list. I love it. It just it makes me so happy to open the cabinets. And then here's something about me. I'm a little insane. Sherry knows it. Do you know the thing I'm going to say about how I'm crazy? Yes. You can say it. You can say it. Jen has <laughs> four different colors. Yeah. Red, Red, yellow, blue, green. yellow, green, and blue. And she stacks them in a pattern. I do. And they're actually, <laughs> they have their fiesta name, Two Scarlet. Then two sunflower, two cobalt, two shamrock. Then we repeat, two more scarlet. <laughs> so every time I go to the beach and Chad doesn't go with me, I come home and my cabinet is all messed up. Oh, and goodness. the very first thing I do the next day when I unload my dishwasher is take them all out and put them back right. Hmm. It just looks so much nicer when it's like, you know, in its little order. 
So now everyone knows a little bit more about me. I would just be happy to have the dishes out of the dishwasher in the cabinet. they got to be red, <laughs> yellow, blue, green. But it's also very helpful because I'll be like, where's that other green saucer? Because I know that oh. I'm missing one. And I also have like a separate cabinet where I have like the, the extra spillover that doesn't fit the pattern. But I'd be like, all right, where's that? Where's that bowl? It's missing. And then, <laughs> oh, Lordy, we all got our issues, Sherry. But live your life. That's, That's right. what this comes down to. Absolutely. So listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure to join the Life Lessons Facebook community. It's called Life Lessons with Jen and Sherry. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you have not subscribed already. And if you have not left a review on iTunes, we'd love for you to leave one. It really helps people find our show and kind of lets them know what to expect. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise that you want to share, just like today, as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com and then listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. So until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.